Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I think for a lot of people, the, uh, the gospel is perhaps best summarized in some favorite verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. That sort of summarizes all the, the, the key elements, they believe, of what it means to receive the gospel, to receive the grace of God. But I would, uh, I would say it, it doesn't explicitly state all of them. It might assume one of the most fundamental, one of the most fundamental elements of that grace that is so central to the gospel is the humility that, that precedes it. In fact, the scripture repeats this again and again, the importance of humility. It states it, beginning in Proverbs chapter 3, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's quoted for us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, and again in in James chapter 4, verse 6. He quotes the same verse, just emphasizing again that God's grace is operable It flows to those who humble themselves before the Lord. And over and over again, you find it in other places in Scripture. The Scripture tells us that God, while He is exalted in the heavens and enthroned above the heavens, He makes His dwelling place with those who are lowly and those who are contrite in heart. Those are the ones He wants to dwell with. Those are the ones that He wants to make His home in their heart and life. Those who are contrite and lowly. Or in a more fundamental way, when Jesus uh, sort of started his preaching ministry, you may remember in his great Sermon on the Mount, he opened that with that monumental statement that the kingdom of heaven is inherited or belongs to the poor in spirit. Those who understand their essential poverty spiritually, their bankruptcy in a spiritual manner. That principle, as I said, runs all the way throughout the scripture, God wanting to bestow his grace, wanting to show his grace to the humble. Those statements are in some ways self-explanatory. They're not difficult to comprehend, but in terms of learning them, that's a different question. Understanding them and really learning them are two different things. And this is demonstrated to us in the life of Jesus' disciples. They had heard the same message from Christ repeatedly, over and over again, the necessity of humility. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They heard all of the other lessons. They understood how much God values humility, and they had seen it demonstrated in the life of Christ. But just like the rest of us, they lived in a world that was calling them to a very different standard. They were surrounded by a society that pointed them to an opposite principle. Tangible examples all around them, role models, heroes that bespoke a different, a, a, a different aim and a different ambition. Even in our own day, Humility, while it may be given lip service from time to time, is not a virtue that is, that is esteemed, at least in practice, whether it's in the boardrooms of businesses or government agencies, athletes, military personnel, influencers, entertainers, all the voices that are constantly bombarding us are voices of self-glory, self-exaltation, self-determination, self-satisfaction, self-interest, all driven towards the goal of self-fulfillment, self-gratification. And even while we're surrounded by all that, we still like to cling to the hope that some of the people who are around us, who are glorying in their own power and in their own wisdom and in their own might or their own prestige, that some of these people have within them some interest in someone other than themselves, especially those who are entrusted with leadership over us, 
We like to hope and believe that they have some interest in the public good or the interest of their their fellow man, but unfortunately, the longer we go in life and the more we see in society, we understand that that is not always the case. Over and over again, we find that the governing principle behind so much that drives our society is self-interest. Unfortunately, that even penetrates into the church. You have people who are in the church with religious facade and religious jargon, but they are just as bent on self-interest. They're like Diotrephes in, in Third John where he talks about a man who wanted to be first. He loved to be first. Doesn't matter if it was in a business or if it's in a church. Doesn't matter if it's a government agency or a religious context. There are those whose, whose love of self manifests itself wherever they go. They're like the Pharisees that Jesus says loved the chief seats in the synagogues. They loved respectful and elaborate greetings. They loved to be called rabbi. They love all of those things that gloried or glorified themselves. In spite of everything that had been said in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the principle of humility that's exalted, while you can easily, while you can easily explain it, you can't easily learn it. Because as I said, you are bombarded, bombarded with messages to the opposite. Well, this morning we have an opportunity once again in the teaching of Christ to be reminded of this very important principle about the greatness of humility, how much God cherishes it, how much God desires it, how much you and I should pursue it. And it comes to us in a, a conversation between Jesus and his, and his apostles in chapter 20, beginning in verse 20 and going down through, the, uh, through 28. A, a, a discussion once again about prominence and prestige and you might say greatness, honor, and how it is defined. Because greatness, at least the greatness that God honors, is defined completely different, distinct from that which we find in the world. And Jesus tries, tries to drive this home once again to his apostles. Beginning in verse 20, we can read the account here. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and the one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. And the ten heard it, and they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you've been with us any length of time in this study of Matthew, particularly over the last couple of chapters, this may sound a little bit like an echo. Because this is not the first time we've heard this lesson. Maybe not in these particular words, but over and over again, we've heard Jesus, particularly as he's come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, where a handful of disciples, including James and John, were privileged to be able to see Jesus in his unveiled glory in front of them. It, it obviously uh, captured their mind and their imagination as far as what must be lying ahead in terms of his kingdom. And they were fascinated by it. I'm sure they were gripped by it. They were probably enticed by it to some extent. 
And seemingly, ever since that moment, Jesus has been ratcheting up the intensity to try to drive home to them the point of humility. He told them at the beginning of chapter 18, not long after he came down the mountain, he says, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to define what that kind of humility is going to look like and its practical outworking in terms of how we interact with one another. That kind of humility and forgiveness and serving one another. After that, in chapter 19, a rich man came to him asking how he could enter into the kingdom of heaven, and he, he sort of uh, deals with him and then turns to his disciples to explain to them that many who are first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. There's going to be this sort of, this sort of uh, upheaval in the worldly standards when it comes to God's kingdom. And he had been emphasizing to this, uh, this to them over and over again, just like he had from the beginning of the ministry when he told them right at the outset that it was the poor in spirit who would inherit the kingdom of God, it, just like he had over and over again when he had confronted the self-seeking and prideful religious elites in Israel. And now, with his face set to go to Jerusalem, he's making his final journey before his crucifixion, before his departure. Now he knows that they are on the cusp of having to put this into action, that all this responsibility for establishing the church and giving spiritual leadership, all this is going to fall to them. And they're going to have to do it without his presence anymore, without his physical presence anymore. And so he wants them to understand. He wants them to really, really embrace the importance of this principle. Now, he's not the only one looking ahead, though. He's not the only one anticipating what's about to come, because they are as well. The apostles have a sense that something's happening, something's about to change. Something's just over the horizon. They had, as I said, seen his unveiled glory on the mountain. They'd heard him talk about the kingdom. They remember he had told them at the end of chapter 19 how they were going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They were looking ahead as well, but in a very different perspective. They were looking ahead with the perspective of the world, the expectations of worldly standards. They were aligning They were aligning their expectations with their own self-interest. And because of that, John and James make this strategic move to try to secure for themselves the place of greatest prominence in what they believe is going to be this coming kingdom. And their efforts once again demonstrate how much they still needed to learn, how much they still needed to understand the pathway of spiritual greatness. They had been with Christ for three years. Three years. Think back to where you were three years ago. Think back to all the things that have passed in your life. Think back to all the lessons that you've learned in the last three years, everything that has changed. They've been with him for three years, over and over again, watching his life, hearing his teaching, uh, being taught publicly and privately by him. And still, they haven't learned. Jesus takes this opportunity to emphasize to them again these fundamental convictions that they needed to develop uh, if they're ever going to reach the place of spiritual greatness. There are four of them I think we could identify in this passage, four fundamental convictions that you need to develop if you're going to Uh, if you're going to ever achieve spiritual greatness. The first one in verses 20 and 21 is just simply the, the need, the conviction to reject the pursuit of personal prominence. Reject the pursuit of prominence that you see all around you. That's obviously not something they had learned as you see them driven by this desire for personal greatness, eager for positions. They concoct this scheme they employ, in fact, their mother, who uh, they want to come and make the request for them. This is probably partly because uh, in this culture, older women would have been shown a certain level of esteem and uh, would have been shown a, a sort of a deference to them. And so uh, because they don't have the brashness to make the, 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 the request themselves, 
they, they sort of plant the words in their mother's lips. But it's not just that. There's probably something else at play here because when, when we look a little deeper into who their mother is, we understand a different angle. We're told by one of the other Gospels her name is Salome. She is Salome, and we're told uh, in addition to that that she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So this is Jesus' aunt that's coming to him, close family member, one who he had sort of grown up with and knowing and interacting with, and that would have made James and John his cousins. And so these guys are probably trying to leverage, if you will, that family connection for some sort of special favor that they, uh, that they thought that they could seize upon. No matter what their strategy, though, their request demonstrates that they still have yet to learn many of the lessons Jesus has been trying to teach them. They still did not understand servanthood. They didn't understand humility. They didn't understand sacrifice, even though he had made the point over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, back in verse 17 and 19, right before this passage, he had just given them yet again another prediction about his own pathway, how he himself was headed not to a place of exaltation, but to a place of humiliation. How he himself was walking into a hornet's nest. He was going to be rejected and ridiculed and despised. He was going to be tortured and crucified by the religious establishment. But instead of listening to all that and comprehending that and processing all that, these guys were still so preoccupied with their own self-promotion, with their own sort of self-referential uh, worldview with their own self-glory, they were still so absorbed with those things, they weren't, they weren't tapping into any of it. They, they so craved privilege and position and authority, they had actually very little concern for anything that was actually going on in Jesus' life. This is sort of innate it's sort of the inclination that all of us have deeply ingrained in us, just like it was with them, this natural inclination to self-promotion and self-reference and self-absorption. And it's something that, that just like them, they, they needed to unlearn. You and I have to, have to unlearn. It's like a bad sort of golf swing that you maybe develop when you're first picking up the game that you just can't seem to get away from anymore and it's ruining your whole life sometimes. I know it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it feels like it when you're out there. Or maybe a bad shooting form in basketball or a bad habit of speeding or whatever your sort of thing is. You, you get into a habit and then it seems like you, you take almost a lifetime to try to unlearn those bad habits. Well, these guys are in this long process of having to unlearn the sort of natural inclination that they have from their own flesh and also from the entire society around them. The desire to want to be first, to want to have self-determination and self-glory and self-interest paramount. Just a few weeks, they'll be in Jerusalem, and Jesus, once again, will be confronting the Pharisees, as I said, who he says always want the chief seats in the synagogue. And they always want to be greeted as rabbi, the teacher, the titles, the privilege. They're always those people. I mean, they, they come to you, and they're always clamoring, I want this position, I want this title, I want this, I want that, I want to be recognized, I want, to be, I want people to see my gifts, I want to see people, people see how valuable I am, I want them to understand all the sacrifices I've made. That natural, fleshly inclination that is still so strong within them. Well, they hadn't learned to unlearn that. All the warnings that Jesus had given them about pride, all the, all the references he had made to his own suffering and his own humiliation, they hadn't learned any of that. They failed to realize that the kind of pride that was driving them was not only unhelpful, it is contrary to the very nature 
of the kingdom that they were asking to have prominence in. They wanted to have the kingdom of God, but they wanted it based on the principles of the world. But it was this pride, or it is this pride, that is inherently destructive to you and to the world around you. It undermines everyone in society and everything that they do. What doesn't matter if it's a kingdom or a nation or a community or a society or a home, if you do not have sort of the mutually supportive uh, uh, interest in others rather than yourself, your, your sort of bonds are going to unravel. You're going to find yourself being fundamentally torn apart. People who are consumed with their own interests find that, that their world and their relationships crumble. Whether it is on a grand scale and you begin to lose interest in your fellow citizens, you lose interest in your neighbors or even your friends or even your own families. As the self-centeredness grows stronger and stronger, the interpersonal bonds weaken and begin to fray. You prioritize your own rights, your own freedoms, your own pursuits, and the fabric that holds everything together is torn apart. These kinds of attitudes... They're not just incompatible, they're detrimental to the kingdom of heaven. They oppose everything that God is about and what his kingdom will be built on. The world around you might be full of personal gain and self-aggrandizement and all those things, but that doesn't operate. The kingdom of heaven doesn't operate that way. In fact, those very things contradict and undermine everything that his kingdom is supposed to be about. To bring that kind of attitude into the kingdom and then to want to be exalted to some high position in it would be to introduce into the kingdom of heaven all of the pettiness and all of the, all of the sort of uh, darkness and all of the, uh, the, the weakness, all of the disharmony that characterizes this world. It would do the exact opposite of providing greatness it would provide it would provide really destruction to the kingdom but these two disciples they're just kind of assuming that God's just going to grant them some sort of ease they're, they're just going to import all of this stuff right into the kingdom they're going to they're going to go right into the kingdom of heaven operating on all the same principles that are influencing them now everything they see in the world everything they're living for right now they're just going to transition that whole thing right into the kingdom of heaven all they want to do right now is just secure their place at the top but they hadn't yet learned to reject the allure of personal self-interest, self-freedom, self-determination, self-glory. And they hadn't learned to embrace the virtues of humility and sacrifice and obedience and servanthood. That's why whenever they come and Jesus says, what do you want us to do? And she says, I want my sons to sit at the right hand and at the left, those places of prominence, those ones that would have been closest to Jesus, those ones would have had the most influence and the most power. Jesus just says, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand. You don't understand how my kingdom operates. You don't understand how spiritual greatness operates. And then he follows up with a probing question about suffering, which introduces for us really a, a second conviction that they needed to develop. Not only did they need to reject all that stuff from the world, but they needed to realize the purpose of suffering. He says to them there, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? You don't really realize what you're asking in part because you don't realize that uh, what spiritual greatness is all about, but also you don't realize what it's going to take to actually experience spiritual greatness. Greatness in the kingdom has nothing to do with all the prominence and self-promotion 
that all the people around you are exhibiting. And greatness in the kingdom is defined by humility. And that humility is developed in only one way. Suffering. That's the only way to have it. Our Lord knows this. And so we ask them if, you, if they were willing, if they're able to endure the kind of suffering that would be necessary to produce the kind of greatness that would reflect the kind of status that they want. Because the reality is most people aren't. People are just not willing to go through that. They, don't, they, they want the status. They want the prominence. They want the title. They want the influence. They want the reputation. They want all that stuff that they imagine goes along with all that. They just, they just want it bestowed on them. They don't want to actually walk down the hard pathway of developing that greatness. But that's exactly what must happen. Peter understood this. He'll write it later in his, in his letter many decades after this, as a matter of fact, after he had already been through so many trials. And he will say to the believers there in northern Turkey, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're going through these trials, he says, for a little while, but there's a purpose in the trials. The trials are doing something within you. They're producing in you a genuineness more precious than gold, a genuineness of your spiritual character. Peter understood what Proverbs says in Proverbs 17, 3. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. That's what He does. That's what God does. He puts us through the furnace, through the trial. Now, you might be thinking, wait, I, I don't know if I like the sound of that. I mean, what kind of God is that? I mean, you say He takes some sort of pleasure in harming us. Does God take some sort of delight in sending suffering our way? What kind of loving God would intentionally put his children through so much suffering? Well, you might as well ask, how can you cherish a fine piece of jewelry more than a dusty lump of rock and ore with lead and mercury and copper and gold and minerals all mixed into it? It might have some value, but for it to reach its full potential, it has to be smelted and refined and purified and pounded and molded into shape. Jesus understood this. Agonizing and challenging as suffering might be, it is that thing which has the transformative power to cultivate the kind of humility that makes greatness. It's in the suffering when you actually begin to see your vulnerabilities laid bare. It's in the suffering that your perception of your own strength and self-sufficiency is absolutely shattered. When you face all of the pain and all of the adversity and you're humbled to realize that you're not as invincible as you thought you were, that you are as fallible as any other man or woman, that you are as enslaved to your passions than you ever really wanted to admit. It strips away all the illusion of superiority and self-sufficiency and self-importance that you had lived under. It teaches you that you're not immune to hardship and mistakes and doubts and temptations. It is suffering that fosters sympathy and compassion that makes you gentle and patient with other people. All those things are learned only one way. It's in suffering that you're forced to reevaluate priorities and pursuits. And you realize the things that you had dreamt of and clung to are just passing away. 
All your self-centered pursuits are crucified. And your perspective is clarified and crystallized through those intense moments of pain. They show you all your imperfections and they force you to let go of your pride. You also learn that you're not in control like you thought you were. You thought because of your own ingenuity, because of your own cleverness, because of your own sort of determination and whatever it might be, or just your own right. You just sort of had a right to just determine everything. All that stripped away. As you realize you are helpless, cannot control what's going on around you as much as you wish that you could. And all that humbles you under the sovereignty of God, which God knows that you need if you're ever going to be refined and purified and beautified and brought into a place of greatness. Another way to say that is he knows that you're never going to have the strength that you need to accomplish great things in the kingdom of God until you're absolutely convinced of your weakness, which is what Paul realized. You may remember whenever an emissary of Satan was sent into his life to afflict him and he kept asking God over and over again to set him free and God kept answering him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul got to the point where he could actually say, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. He understood that the way now God develops strength and the way God develops greatness is through weakness. And so calamities and hardships and persecutions and insults, he was okay with them. He embraced them. He understood their purpose. So Jesus asked these two guys, are you able to drink the cup? You want the position, you want all the prestige, are you able to drink the cup? Well, and they're sort of hubris. They say, yeah, we're able. They they don't know what they're talking about. Of course, Jesus knows God's love for them and he knows God's desire to develop their character and their heart and their faith and he knows God's will to do whatever is necessary to form spiritual greatness in them. So he says to them in verse 23, you will drink my cup, but it sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And now in his incarnate humility, he's yielded all those final decisions to the heavenly Father He himself is yielded. He himself is humble, even when it comes to the determinations in his own kingdom. He's not even going to make that call. He's demonstrating the kind of greatness that will characterize this kingdom, the kind of humility. And he says, the decision's not even up to me. It's only for those that God has purposed it for. Meaning, I don't really know what's going to happen in you guys' life. I don't really know, he's saying, what God has for you. He's much in the same position like you and I. You know, we don't know. We don't know what God has for us in the coming kingdom, what kind of position he wants to place us in. That's in his doing. That's in his purpose and in his will. But we do know that to get us ready for that, he must take us down the same pathway. And we do know that when he takes us down that pathway of suffering, he's doing it because he is refining and he is developing and he's chiseling away at your heart and your character and your pride and your self-sufficiency. He's undoing all of that stuff so that he can prepare you for whatever he has ahead. So Jesus is saying, I don't really know what he has in store for you. God knows all that. But I do know you will have to drink a cup. I do know you will have to suffer because that's that's God's way of working in every heart to do the kind of work he wants to do. And so it's your role and it's my role to embrace that, to embrace all of the pain, to kind of walk through all the despair, to kind of cling to him and, and to let go of our pride 
our freedoms, our self-determination, just to let loose of all that stuff so that God can do whatever He wants to do in us. Paul says to the Romans, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, and if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. For I consider the suffering that's in this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. So before these guys ever experienced any kind of spiritual greatness, any kind of prominence or whatever they might be imagining, they need to develop an understanding, a conviction that the pathway is going to involve a great deal of suffering. And they're going to have to embrace it and they're going to have to endure it and they're going to have to trust God through it and yield to whatever His desires are for them in the end. However, He wants to prepare them for what's ahead. Well, there's a third fundamental conviction they also need to develop and, and it comes in verse 24 when, when we see that, 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 that all the apostles really still needed to learn this, the paradox of humility. They need to recognize that in the kingdom there's a paradox. You see, in verse 24, when they heard these two try to sort of jockey for position, they were indignant. They were indignant at the two brothers. They, they weren't angry about what they were asking for. They were angry that they asked first, right? They were angry because these two guys were seizing the opportunity that every other apostle secretly believed really belonged to them. And so Jesus wants to remind them again of the absolute essential need to have an understanding of this paradox, which up to this time apparently has evaded them. So he calls them in verse 25, and he says to them, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. I mean, you, you see this everywhere around you and it has infected you. You've allowed your mind to be poisoned by this stuff. You've allowed your mind to be influenced by this stuff. The world around you operates on these, these principles of self-importance, of self-freedom, of self-determination, of self-pride. That's how the world operates. It operates by dominance. It operates by authoritarianism. It operates by lording it over people. It operates by threat and manipulation and force and coercion and all those other things. That's the world's way. Now, they, they wouldn't have had a hard time seeing this because the world they lived in, just like the world that we live in, maybe even more so in their days, they didn't have any, even sort of a, a notion of any kind of democracy. Everything in their day was just totalitarianism. Kings and Caesars and emperors and pharaohs, they would have read, readily recognized that what Jesus said was true. And even people who, who sort of veil it and disguise it with sort of crafty messaging and they call themselves a, a public servant or they there, say that they're there to kind of give you some secret insight or lesson. Every one of them at the end of the day are serving and expecting sort of return. They want to be honored. They want to be recognized. They want you to adore their influence and respect their wisdom and they want you to serve their needs and pay their bills or whatever it might be. And in their minds... They are chiefly responsible for so much of what happens around them in the world. It all flows out of them. They're central to everything. Jesus says to the disciples, that's, that's not the attitude that's going to be represented in my kingdom. My kingdom has no place for that. No provision for the self-seeking and self-fulfillment and personal success and self-elevation. He's reminding them there are two pathways to greatness that are presented to you. There's the greatness of the world that is all about itself and then there is the greatness of God. Two standards of greatness. And so he says to them, it shall not be so among you. 
He wants them to understand that the kind of egotism that surrounds them all the time, it it doesn't fulfill you personally and it doesn't accomplish God's work in and through you. If anything, it hinders the spiritual usefulness and the spiritual greatness that God wants to develop. I mean, the whole gospel, of course, is built on this. Jesus has been trying to tell them all along this fundamental principle that whoever wants to find his life is going to lose it. But it's the person who loses his life for the sake of Christ who actually finds it. And so God wants his kingdom built on this paradox. And Jesus tells them then, instead of looking to all the voices that are bombarding you all the time, instead of looking to all these examples around you in government and in business and in whatever it is, you know, entertainment, instead of looking to all those people and trying to figure out how to get great like they're great, let me give you two other examples to look at. A servant and a slave. That's what he says to them. One, who, whoever among you wants to be great will be your servant, and whoever would be first will be your slave. Servant is diakonos. It's basically a, a kind of a, a manual a laborer, a hired hand, someone, whoever, whoever it is that does menial, unskilled tasks. That's basically what the word uh, describes. You know, not, not sort of the top of the heap at all. These are the people that dug the ditches and rowed the boats and you know, cleaned the fishing nets or whatever it might be. They were the low people. But there was a rung below them, which was the slave, the doulos. Uh, they're even below the status of a servant because a slave didn't even have freedom of choice. They didn't even get to choose what they did. They might have performed similar tasks, but on top of that, they were the property of someone else, the lowest on the scale. Those are your examples. That's the ones I want you to look to. Not because the world is going to recognize them as anything great. In fact, it would be just the opposite. But by following those two examples, you're going to operate in the realm of spiritual greatness. Now, I know people today have co-opted this terminology and and their whole books, uh, management books that are written about servant leadership, you know, how we need to be servant leaders. But all that stuff is from a fundamental angle of influence of self-serving, of somehow building your own sort of influence and portfolio and all that stuff. But that stuff, you understand, that's absent of whatever Jesus is saying here. He's not talking about a, a ploy to manipulate people. This is just slavery in its absolute sense. Just a slave and a servant. You have these two kinds of, of ambition. There's the ambition to be approved and applauded by men and by the world, to be recognized by them as great. And then there is the ambition to be approved and applauded by God, to be recognized by Him as great. And that will often mean not being recognized by the world. In fact, by the world standard, you're just a lowly slave, you're just a nobody. The ambition of the world is to gain fame and attention and power and possessions. They measure themselves by how much uh, influence do I have? What's the extent of my power? How many people are serving me? How many people know me? The ambition that pleases God is asking one question. How can I be like God? How can I be pleasing to him? How can I have his character? That's greatness. It's applause from one, from God. Paul says it like this. We have a treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots. We have a treasure in a clay pot that the surpassing greatness of the power that works through us comes from God and not from ourselves. 
In other words, you're just a clay pot, you know, just sort of some little thing stuck in the corner that nobody ever pays attention to. It's not particularly fancy. It's not particularly beautiful. It's just an empty pot. But inside that pot is filled the glory of God. That's the kind of pots he fills. He fills empty vessels, empty of themselves, empty of their own sort of ambitions, empty of their own glory. And that's what they need to embrace. Well, very quickly, a fourth conviction they also needed to take up is that if they're ever going to reach spiritual greatness, they're going to have to remember the pattern of Christ, which he adds there in verse 28, the example of his own life. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, this is, this is what he demonstrated to them. Humility that he had given to them is so different from the world that it's all about self-determination and self-will and self-freedom and self-exaltation, all that stuff. Ease and luxury and applause. That's, that's not what Christ's life was about at all. In fact, his life was about paying a price for other people. That's what he says. I came to give my life as a lutron, a ransom. It's only found two places in all of Scripture here and in the parallel account of Matthew, but the word would have been very familiar to them in the ancient world. It was a word that referred to a redemption price, the the, the purchase of the freedom of a slave, the money that was given in exchange for the freedom of a slave. And so Jesus says, that's why I came. I came in order to pay the price for someone else. I came in order to be the payment for those who would be set free from their slavery. In other, word, in other words, I am enslaved to that purpose so that you can be free. That's what he did. He wasn't liberated. He wasn't freed. He wasn't self-determined. He wasn't any of that stuff. He was, he was bound for that purpose. And he came to serve or to enslave himself to that end. He paid a price that would satisfy the demands of God's law that have placed you and me in slavery and bondage. We are in bondage to the condemnation of the law. We're in bondage to sin. And because of all those things, we are helpless and hopeless. Now, you may not realize all that. In fact, many of the people that Jesus would do this for would not realize it when he was doing it. He had to go forward with the recognition that what he was doing at the moment he was doing it would be completely unappreciated. No one would appreciate what he's doing for them. But you see, that's servanthood. Servanthood isn't about the applause that you get in the act. It's about serving other people. Serving them with the truth. Serving them with sacrifice. Because Jesus knew that you are enslaved. He knew that you were in bondage. And he knew that you would never get out of that unless someone paid the price for you. He's like the rod that takes the strike of God's condemning lightning and transfers it all beyond you so that you can escape the wrath of God. This is the path of greatness that Jesus took. The path of slavery, the path of servanthood, as Philippians says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the pattern they needed. Not the self-seeking pattern, the pattern that just says, I am a price to be paid in service to other people. Jesus had everything. I mean, he had glory with God, heaven, praise, adoration, and, and Philippians says he laid it all aside. He emptied himself of all that stuff. And he came all the way down, took the form of a slave to face a death 
But you know, Philippians goes on and says, therefore, based on all of that, a humiliation that he took upon himself, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. As if his name wasn't great enough already. As a result of this humble servant, servanthood, God gave him a name that's above every name. And Jesus is just with his disciples and he's just saying, I wish that I could just so implant this into your hearts that it would be so deeply embedded and take root and begin to spring up into every part of you and, and start to bear fruit a hundredfold. I wish, I wish somehow, some way you could just get this into your mind. This is not about you. It's not about your prominence. It's not about any of those things. This is about becoming what God wants you to be through suffering and through slavery and through, through servanthood and through sacrifice and all those other things. This is about God, getting God's praise and God's approval. That's the only greatness you need. Only greatness you should ever desire. And the greatness that God's looking for. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Father, we are in the same boat as those disciples still trying to unlearn the things we have been taught by the world, the inclinations of our own flesh. Today, we pray that you would embed these truths deep in our hearts. Help us to embrace the pathway to spiritual greatness pathway that was walked by our Savior and demonstrated by Him. Let us be content, as the Apostle Paul said, with whatever calamities, insults, ridicule, persecutions, rejections. Let us be content with whatever you send our way to develop in us the kind of servanthood, the kind of humility that you want to develop as long as you are pleased, O God. Let us be content. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.